Well, it's again good to see everyone. Uh, we have been blessed once again. God has answered our prayers in allowing us to assemble again tonight as we asked Him to do. And He's done that. Uh, that we may again study His Word uh, more closely and in-depthly and be able to not only appreciate the revelation that He's given us, but also to do those things that He's revealed within that. And I appreciate the sentiment of the prayer. Uh, that of us challenging ourselves and being willing to make the changes, if need be, uh, that are necessary for us to be pleasing, first and foremost, to God and to be able to work with one another. And so that has been our endeavor throughout uh, the week thus far as we challenge ourselves uh, regarding God's word. And last night we looked at a subject entitled Jesus and Silence, and we looked at Jesus' attitude really toward the authority of God and the authority of the scriptures. That's essentially what we were doing. And, of course, Jesus being who he was and who he is, if his attitude toward the scriptures, if his attitude toward even himself and his word was one of reverence, Jesus said he can do nothing of himself. He did not speak of his own authority or his own fruition. He spoke that which was given to him. Now, if he can do that, most certainly. Most certainly, that should be our pursuit and endeavor all throughout uh, our lives. And so we are thankful tonight for another opportunity uh, to be able to examine the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and implement the things that are so needful for us to do in this lost and dying world, a world that is crumbling before us. But we know that we have hope because we have Christ, if indeed we do. And if we don't, we hope. But something will be said tonight that will help us to see that need and make the necessary changes in our lives and do those things that are essential for us to go beyond this world, beyond this life, into the eternal realm of heaven itself. Now, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given unto me. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, uh, the uh, uh, resurrection from the dead, rather, and the Spirit of holiness. And so Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. Now, as we consider that uh, that particular uh, uh, statement of our Lord, of course, he said that after he had been crucified, of course. Uh, buried three days and rose again from the dead and would ascend into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, of course, he gave commandments to his apostles, all based on his authority. But it is important for us to note that Jesus Christ, even before that particular moment, would establish, establish the truth of his authority to those who he had been speaking and giving discourses all for the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Now, as we consider the last week discourses of Jesus, by last week discourses, what we're referring to are the discourses, sermons, speeches, whatever you want to call them, that Jesus Christ gave before he would ascend into heaven, the last week of his earthly ministry. He gave many. He gave many. And it was at that time, you know, if you were about to go somewhere and wouldn't be coming back, the things that you would say would be extremely important. Now, we are not at any point in time saying that everything Jesus said was of the utmost importance. They are all essential for us to get to heaven. But when you're about to leave, when you're about to go, the things that you have have culminated and the things that have been built up all throughout that time, Jesus Christ would really bring to a conclusionary aspect. And so these last week discourses are what Jesus Christ would say to, 
to those groups that he spoke to, whether it was the apostles in John 17, as he would, uh, John actually, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And I know many of our neighbors here in the world forget that John 14, 15, and 16 was spoken to the apostles. But nevertheless, he gave them the hope that the Spirit would come upon them and he would bring to their remembrance all things that he commanded and he would bring to their remembrance the truth that he had spoken to them. But then he teaches them about prayer. And he, of course, in the true Lord's Prayer, Jesus Christ prayed for his disciples. He prayed for his apostles, of course, that also uh, not only them, but uh, we who would believe on him through their word, we too would be one as he and his Father were one. And so as we consider all those things, Jesus Christ in this last week discourses would say some things that I believe are worthy of our consideration. So we want to talk this evening about Jesus' discourse on authority. And more importantly, more specifically probably, Jesus Christ's discourse on his authority. His authority. That he would proclaim to his disciples, all has been given unto me in heaven and earth. So let us turn to Matthew. Well, just hold your places there in Matthew chapter 21 and even more so John chapter 12. All of these particular verses talk about a, a single or, or event, rather, in the life of Jesus as he would enter into the city of Jerusalem. This lesson is going to be divided really into two sections. One, one is Jesus Christ's initial entry into the city of Jerusalem. Then this last week, these, these last moments, Jesus Christ would enter into the city twice. He would also have a subsequent entry, uh, entry rather, into the city of Jerusalem. And so we want to look at both of these instances, both of these times, in which Jesus Christ would enter into the city. Of course, the last time, the final time, uh, we would also talk about the things that he would be, uh, that would be said then. But now there are basically three point, uh, points I want to note about this particular aspect of point in time in the ministry of Christ. First of all, I want to talk about the authority of Christ to save and condemn, as he himself would expressly state and show forth. We also want to talk about the authority of Christ in worship as he would bring to the forefront also uh, in this particular section of his life and in his ministry. And then, finally, the authority of Christ to judge. And we'll note some things about that. But now, even within those points, I want us to pay close attention, close attention, even as we looked at last night, the authority of the Scriptures. Remember, all of these things that Jesus Christ is going to say and do and that are going to be said about him, Essentially, are the fulfillment of the, what the Scripture said would happen in the first place. And so we're going to note those things and see how they have great reverence uh, uh, to what Jesus Christ would say. All right, now, Jesus Christ's authority to save and condemn. His authority to save and condemn. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 and verses 4 and 5. Matthew chapter 21. Verse 4 and 5. As Jesus Christ would enter into the city of Jerusalem, this again, this first time for this particular uh, event, remember Jesus Christ had entered into the city of Jerusalem numerous times, and even as he was being brought up as a child, his, family, uh, his parents rather were faithful Jews, so they were going to take him to Jerusalem, and uh, the occasional, uh, the occasion rather, but God would command the Israelites to come to the city of Jerusalem for those uh, specifically, primarily three feast days, 
and uh, observances that would take place there in the city of Jerusalem as commanded by God. So this wasn't Jesus' first time in the city of Jerusalem, but it was that first after the, subs the subsequent time that he, of course, would be delivered uh, by the Jews. So in Matthew chapter 21, we see in verse 4 and 5, I tell you, let me start with verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Beth, uh, Bethany, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus to the disciples, saying, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find a donkey, and a coat with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say all unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh upon thee, meek, and sitting upon a donkey, and the colt, and the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Now, I just want to pause for just one brief moment. Now, as we consider the account here, just the event itself, we understand, as we've noted, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. Actually, what Jesus Christ is referring to, or what's being referred to by Matthew in Matthew's account, is that which was stated by Zechariah the prophet in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9. So let's go ahead and, and turn there. Let's go ahead and turn there. Remember, Jesus' authority to save and to condemn is what we are speaking of. In Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, and going through verse number 9, we see this authority being spoken of by Jesus far before what we see taking place in Matthew chapter 21. The prophet Zechariah, of course, as we know, a, a prophet of the return, as he's referred to, would state this about the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. The burden of the Lord, the word of the Lord, in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall uh, border thereby, Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire in the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her uh, smite her power in the sea, and he shall be devoured with fire. Ascalon shall see it, and fear. Gaza also shall see it, and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectations, shall she be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ascalon shall not be inhabited. And a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine own house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of he that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now I have seen with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, 
lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt and the foal of a donkey. And so here, that, that's what Jesus Christ, that's, that's what Matthew is recording for us, the event that had already been prophesied by Zechariah. But I want you to know the authority of Jesus Christ to save and to condemn. Remember, the authority of Jesus Christ to save and to condemn was one that was resented by the Jews that dwelt in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus Christ was entering into. Because note, now all the places that Jesus Christ, or I'm sorry, Zacharias referred to here, note the location of these places. Remember, most of these places are in the region of Philistia. These are Gentiles. These are Philistines. And even when you look at Tyre and Zion, of course, which is north of my map, couldn't fit all of it on there. These are Gentiles that Jesus Christ said the former state of them would be destroyed, but no, they would become the people of God. And so Jesus Christ enters into the city of Jerusalem, and the first thing he tells them, you go back to Zechariah, because understood, they would know what's being referred to, and guess what? The Gentiles are going to be saved. To a Jew, and to the Jews <laughs> that had stood opposed to the will of God from the very onset of Jesus' ministry, did not like that fact. How dare God say that the Gentiles could be saved as they believe they ought to have been. And so when Jesus Christ enters, enters into the city, the first thing we know is that salvation is for all. Jesus has the authority to save all men, everybody, no matter whether they're Jew or Gentile. Jesus has that authority. You see, when you look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 1 through 9, you see the future salvation of the Gentiles, much like the prophet Isaiah would state in the chapters uh, within his prophecy about the destiny of the Gentiles, those who would fear the name of the Lord. You see, his dominion over salvation, like we said, is to all men, everybody. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through verse 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through verse 23. Remember, Jesus Christ would say later, All authority, authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. You see, Jesus Christ, his authority to save as well as to condemn, is universal in nature. Now notice what he says. Uh, notice what Paul says rather in Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 23. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us but who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and had put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things to the church, which is, by, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth, in all in all, filleth all in all. Jesus has all authority to save as well as to condemn. And as he entered, uh, enters into the city of Jerusalem, that is the first thing that's being proclaimed by him as he fulfills the prophecy of Zacharias. You go get this donkey, you bring him back, because understand, I am coming to bring the fulfillment of Zacharias way back then about the salvation both to Jew and Gentile. And please don't, don't take for granted, please don't, 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 don't miss the fact that when you look at the history of Israel, the history of Israel, what or who were the group of one of uh, the greatest set of their enemies 
who were some of their greatest enemies. Now, they had a lot of enemies. But, beloved, I believe we can safely say the Philistines were most certainly the enemies of Israel. And these are the places that Zacharias would talk about when he spoke in the period of the return as God in his mercy allowed Israel to come back after the captivity that they brought upon themselves. That prophet would speak about that salvation. You see, Jesus Christ has that authority. Jesus Christ also, as we consider Zacharias for just a moment, has the authority to judge all of his enemies. Let's look back at Zacharias chapter 9 and then verses 11 through 17. Zacharias would go on to say, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. Turn ye to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even, to, uh, even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bowl with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and make thee as a sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall uh, be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour, and subdue with sling stones, and they shall drink. And make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls, and as corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day, as the flock of his people. They shall be as the stones of crown lifted up, as an ensign upon this land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful. And new wine the mage. He's going to destroy his enemies. His enemies will not prevail over his will nor his people. Now I want you to ask, I want you to consider this question. As Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem, after the three and a half years of his earthly ministry, who has shown themselves to be his enemies? Was it the Gentiles? <laughs> Oh, we find some Gentiles that Jesus Christ commends regarding their faith. He had seen faith like that even in Israel when it came to the Roman centurion or the Syrophoenician woman. The publicans, again, I know they were Jews, but the harlots, the people who were of a lowlier state in life, they were the ones who heard the word of Jesus and came to him. You see, who were his enemies as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. Now remember, we're going to Zacharias. That's what's being referred to here. That's what Jesus or Matthew is pointing his readers to. And Zacharias said the enemies of God are going to be destroyed. And hence we ask the question, who were and who is his enemies? Now, judgment to the enemies of God is sure. And as you consider Jesus Christ entering into the city of Jerusalem, we all know who were his enemies. As a matter of fact, the most religious in Judaism were his enemies. They were going to be the ones who cry out, crucify him, crucify him. It's not the lowly. It's not those who have a humble heart. It's those who are prideful. 
It's those who claim to be and thought they were the most pious, the most religious, are going to be the ones that are going to conspire and lie and deliver a righteous and just man, the Son of God, to death. By the hands of the people they hate too, by the way. Jesus will overcome his enemies through the power of God. The Hebrew writer says, and having been made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And of course, the Hebrew writer, remember, the Hebrew writer is writing this epistle trying to keep these Jewish Christians from going back to the law and losing the hope that they have in Christ. And the Hebrew writer says, that all those who obey him, he is the author or captain of their salvation, essentially. And I want you to notice something about this, this idea of all who obey him. The thought, the idea is not those who have obeyed him in the past. The idea is those who are obeying him. You see, we must remember that we have to be in a constant state of faithfulness. And as we talked about uh, last night, and I believe all throughout the week thus far, we're not talking about perfection and us being infallible and flawless. No, a state of faithfulness is those who recognize their need for God. And when things are not as God would have them, they repent of those things when they're in sin. They turn away from those things that are contrary to God. And that's not a one-time event. That is a continual and con a constant state of mind that we are going to repent and be a repentant people, a humble people, and depend on the mercy and goodness of our God as he will allow his blood, the blood of his son, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's those who are obeying him that he is the author of their eternal salvation. And those Hebrew, or those Jewish Christians in this epistle, the Hebrew writer, sure, made the point that they need to understand that. You cannot leave Christ and have any hope. You see, Jesus, in entering into the city, is showing that he has the ability and power to save all men. And those who will not be saved by him are those who have rejected him. And note, whoever they are. You see, I think we need to really remember that. Because oftentimes, I'm not saying all, all the time, and I'm not saying all Christians. But beloved, many Christians believe that since they've been baptized years ago, they straight for life. I believe there are many, many Christians who have, a, have accepted a very subtle, very underlying, very concealed Belief in Calvinism. Oh, they wouldn't dare say it. Oh, no. Oh, they wouldn't dare, dare state that verbally. But all we got to do is look at their lives. Don't they believe it? Now, yeah. Well, 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 it may not be you. Amen. Thank God. But there are many Christians who live as if they're Calvinists. Once saved, always saved. There's no way I'm going to lose my hope. And it's evident by how they act toward God and the authority of Christ. And they can be so religious. Oh, boy, they don't ever miss a service. That's wonderful, by the way. Amen. But I think oftentimes we believe that's all that entails Christianity. When you look at the New Testament, 
You look at the book of Acts, per se. Beloved, tell me how much of this inspired book is dedicated to the assembly of the saints. Think about it. Not saying that that's not significant. Essential. Yes, we have Acts 2, 42. We have other places, Acts 5, Acts 4. All these different places that talk about the assembly. Acts 20, verse 7. We don't doubt any of those things. But now, when you compare that with the entirety of the book, how much of the book is dedicated to the assembling together of the saints? It's, it's amazing that we oftentimes as evangelists have to go through so much effort and work trying to convince people they need to come to worship. I mean, you, you, you have to go knock on folks' doors. You have to try to track them down like you're some private investigator or something. They won't return your calls. You got to write. You got to do all this stuff. And then when you finally convince them that they need to start coming to services to glorify and worship God and edify their brethren, they come in as if not only you, but God owes them. I mean, you can have people who've gone from there and walk in here, and y'all better not say nothing. You better be glad I'm here. God, you be thankful I've decided to grace you with my presence. It's oftentimes the way people act. The reason I believe that not a lot of the book of Acts, the early history of the church, is dedicated to that because Christians, I believe, knew it was understood that you're going to go and worship God. They didn't have to be convinced of that. They didn't have to be told that, look, you need to be here in assembly. You see, the enemy Jesus, the enemies, were outwardly the most religious. You would have never thought they, the Pharisees, the chief priests and elders, would deliver the Christ. But they will. And Jesus Christ is telling them that he will. And the Gentiles can be saved. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing the authority that our Lord is exemplifying here. Now, as we also have noted, as Jesus entered in, uh, enters into the city, we see he is praised as the Messiah, as the Messiah, as the Christ, the anointed one. Turn with me again to Matthew 21, verses 6 through verse number 9. Remember our emphasis on the fulfillment of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. In Matthew chapter 21, and verses 6 through 9, again, Matthew records for us these inspired words. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their, uh, put on their, uh, put on them, I'm sorry, their clothes. And they set them, uh, set him there on and a great multitude, a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and straw of them in the way and the multitudes that went before and he that followed and that followed. I'm sorry, let me slow down. Uh, cried saying, blessed is he. I'm sorry, blessed Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And there and when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? All right, so we find this great praise that's being given to Jesus. And they're praising him as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the Son of God. Now, this idea of the word Hosanna, you know, the psalmist 
when you go back to Psalms 118 and verse 25 through 29. Because this, believe it or not, is another fulfillment of an Old Testament passage of Scripture. The Old Testament book of Psalms. And what Jesus Christ and what is happening here is the fulfillment of what the psalmist states in Psalms 1, uh, 118, verses 25 through 29. Say now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. God has showed his light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, and I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. The term Hosanna is actually a, a term uh, in Aramaic that expresses the meaning help. And that's what we see in Psalms 119. Help us or save us. That's what the people are crying out. Now, of course, at some point in time, it simply became a phrase of liturgy. And people use it in that way, or, again, just as a word or, or statement of praise. But, but the idea and concept is, save me, save me, deliver me, help me. And so as they're crying out to Christ, that's what essentially they are crying out about. Lord, save us. Lord, help us. Because understand, that's what the Messiah was to do. You see, other people within the nation of Israel, there were a multitude of people in the city of Jerusalem. The help that they desired, the salvation that they desired, was not of their souls. It was not from their sins. They wanted a Christ, the Messiah, to be like David, to be perhaps like Joshua, come in, rally the people, destroy the Romans, take over them, and they'd be restored back to the ancient prominence that they had within the world as the people of God, that being the affirmation of it. And that's what they wanted. But as Jesus Christ would ride into the city on a donkey, not a white horse as a conqueror would, but meek and lowly, but his salvation was not that of an earthly conquering, but the conquering of sin and death. And so as they are crying out, Hosanna, we're referring right back to Psalms 118, whether they really realize it or not. What salvation, we ask? And again, we know it's the salvation of, of the soul. Are they crying out? You see, this is said twice in its entry into the city. By the multitudes, again, Matthew 21 and verse 9, Mark chapter 11 and verse 9. And while in the temple, when he would uh, come back in that subsequent trip into the temple in Matthew 21 and verse 15. And so as they cry these things out, save us, save us, help us. What are they crying out for? Now, Jesus does have the authority to end all strife on this world. Jesus had the authority to end all murder, all lying, everything, if he so chose to do that. Remember, our Lord had the authority not to be crucified. If he so choose, or had chosen, he could have called 12 legions of angels and stopped it all. But Jesus even presented the question, well, how then would my Father's will be accomplished? The salvation that Jesus Christ is speaking of is not an earthly salvation. As Jesus Christ showed his authority, remember, all who submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans, they cannot 
be taken out of the Father's hand. But the salvation that Jesus Christ is talking about is that of eternal salvation, the salvation of the soul. You see, so many in this world believe that the salvation that Jesus Christ is talking about is the salvation from poverty. The salvation of, from sickness and, and disease and, 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 and strife. Beloved, that's not the salvation that he's talking about. Because understand, you're going to, if you live faithful in this world, the Bible tells us that if you live God in this world, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, you will suffer persecution. You will get sick. You will, you're going to die if, if, if we are here long enough. I don't care how faithful we are. It's appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment, the salvation, the self, uh, the saving that they are crying for, that they should be crying for is that of the salvation from sin. That is our first priority. That is it. That's what it's about. All these other things that take place in life are things that are going to take place in life. And unlike those Jews who wanted the Messiah to be this conqueror, to be this king, beloved, we have to be careful not to have that same mentality. You see, Jesus Christ is showing his authority over sin. When you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through verse 13, the Apostle Paul would say it this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all the same, save me. Beloved, oftentimes, if we're not careful, our crying out, Hosanna, is for God to save us from the earthly things that are going to inevitably take place. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. And if you're not being persecuted, if you're not having some adversity in your life, if everybody loves you, and you're liked by, oh, every, you're just the greatest thing since sliced bread. You need to examine yourself. You need to ask yourself, am I truly proclaiming the truth of Christ? Because when he did it, he was killed. I have to ask myself, if everybody loves me, if the world loves me, what am I not saying or what am I not doing? God did not come to save you from being disliked and being hated. He did not come to save you from that. And by the way, we don't fight or wrestle or war against flesh and blood, brethren. Brethren. I think sometimes we think our enemy is each other. If that's the case. I have shame on us. Paul said, look, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. And when we are warring against these principalities and powers, we have to understand what people are doing those things that are contrary to God and you're doing things that are in accordance with God yes there's going to be adversity but they're working with the power that they don't fully understand even among us we're not fighting against each other but hopefully we should be fighting against Satan the psalmist praises God for his enduring mercy and deliverance <coughs> from his enemies when you go back to Psalms 
118. Look at how many times. Just in the initial part of the verse, how we should praise God for his enduring mercy. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and sent me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Hosanna. Save me from my own self. If Jesus is our Savior, we don't fear men. We don't fear our enemies. We don't fear what people can do for us because we reverence what God has done for us. That we, we Think about Christianity. Just think about it. Think about it from the standpoint of brethren you know or a local church, whoever they are, wherever they are, that is full with a group of people who don't Fear what men can do to them. Don't have any fear of it whatsoever. You think about how that local church would carry out the work of the Lord. They don't fear that their boss is going to fire them. Fire them when they schedule work Sundays or Wednesday. They don't fear that. They don't fear that their neighbor is going to hate them when they tell them the truth. They don't fear the people in the neighborhood are going to start talking about them when they begin to preach the gospel. They are not ashamed in school when their professors and all these people are talking to some of the abominable things that people are doing in this world and it's against God. They don't fear getting in a failing grade. They stand up for the word of God. They don't fear not having friends and losing acquaintances, losing their girlfriend, losing their boyfriend. don't fear those things. Save us from our own fears, our own apprehension about being faithful. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For, the, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, of course, the idea, I hope you do know this, that the idea of he does not sin means he does not continue to sin. He doesn't remain in sin. He doesn't stay in sin. He doesn't dwell in sin. He doesn't live in sin. You know, I personally don't know why Christians run around calling themselves sinners. That doesn't mean we don't sin. But, beloved, to be a sinner means to be a sinner, to be in a constant state of sin, to expect to sin. Now, again, we, we're going to do it. The Bible says so. But, beloved, I don't enter into a day. Well, I wonder what sin I'm going to commit today. Hmm. I don't enter no day like that. I hope you don't either. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And we have that victory in him. You see, the psalmist praises God for his enduring mercy and delivers. We have the victory over death itself. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through verse 27, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Prove. See, they praised Jesus for being the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew would say previously. You see, the psalmist praises God for that. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 39, remember when the psalmist said, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That statement is, 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 is a phrase, or that phrase is used in other places in the Bible. As a matter of fact, this phrase is stated three times in the psalm, and each time, guess what it's referring to? The destruction of his enemies. The destruction of his enemies. When you look at first, for, for example, in verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Then look at verse number 10. All nations compass me about, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Verse 11. They compass me about. Yeah, they compass me about. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of, the, of, uh, of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Now, remember, this is the song that's being referred to. Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, save us. This is that same song. And in the name of the Lord, in these instances, they're referring to the destruction of the enemies of the people of God. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment. When did Jesus say this? Well, when you look at Matthew chapter 23, now we asked the question earlier, who are the enemies? Who are the ones that are opposed to God's will as he enters into the city of Jerusalem? Well, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 39, we remember the words of our Lord, and let us even start with verse number 30, uh, 35, if you don't mind. <clears throat> that in you, and again, talking about that generation, may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, blessed is he that cometh. In the name of the Lord. You think they don't understand where Jesus Christ just took them to? <clears throat> they believe they understood. And he goes on to tell them, you will be destroyed. Your house will be left unto you desolate. And so as they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Please know that the city he's about to enter into will be destroyed just a few years later from there. And it will never, ever be rebuilt totally again. Ever. Second, his authority over worship. As Jesus would enter into the city, one of the first things Jesus would do in verse 12 through 17 of Matthew 21 is he would address and signify his authority over worship. In Matthew 21 and verses 12 through 17, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast all them out that sold and bought in the temple. And overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came unto him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children of Israel, uh, children were the same into the temple. Remember the second time we talked about the, the, the statement or, or phrase of praise, so to speak. Hosanna to the son of David. They were sore displeased. And he said unto him, and they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? Psalms 8 and verse 2. And he left them and went out of the city into a Bethany and he lodged there. Jesus entered into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, went into the temple. He cast out the money changers, those who were selling things and, and doing things that they ought not to have been doing. In the temple. Now, the idea of a house of prayer doesn't mean that you're only to pray in the temple. We know sacrifice will offered in the temple. It's just a synecdoche. In other words, it's something that represents something else. What he's saying essentially is, look, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a, a den of thieves. It's a place of worship. It's a place of worship. It's not for what you're doing. Now, remember when the lame and the blind came in, they were healed in the temple. Oh, yeah, they were healed. See, that's where the, the, the place of God ought to be, a place for healing. Not a place of merchandise and a, person, a place of recreation and, and social activities and fun and frolic and baseball and softball and football and barbecues and trips to Six Flags and Disney World and all the, While people are dying in sin, Christians are playing and frolicking around. Like, we don't have better things to do. Now, individually, hey, that's your responsibility to entertain your family, entertain your children, to educate your children. But in God's house, God has designated that the local church be the pillar and ground of the truth. Not a playground. And they were these are Jews who are going to condemn Jesus for telling the truth and they are doing things that are unauthorized and Christ with his authority and by his authority showed them such was the case. You see, his authority in worship is what we need to adhere to. Jesus healed those who were in need of healing. That's what we need to be doing. 
And no, I'm not talking about physical healing. Again, that those miracles were, were to confirm the word of God and those who spoke and represented the word of God. That's what that was about. But we, regarding spiritual healing, is what we're to be about. The Lord's business and helping people be saved from their sins. You see, Israel, Israel had gone so far. And remember, look at Zacharias, the, the prophet of the return of one of them, along with uh, uh, Malachi and Haggai. They, I mean, they, they had lost sight of what's important. Now, what Jesus does is he gives some parables. First of all, uh, before he, he cursed the fig tree. And then I'll let you read that in Matthew 21, 17 through 21, Mark 11, 12 through 14. But now, remember, I believe as you look at this event, this represented the lack of Israel bearing fruit. That's what that was about in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. So when Jesus Christ cursed this fig tree, they are not bearing fruit. They are not doing what God commanded that they do. You go back to Exodus chapter 19. Verses 5 and 6, remember, Israel was to be a peculiar people, a holy nation, a nation, a holy people, rather, uh, a nation of priests. That's what they were to be. They gave and they acknowledged that they would obey the commandments of God. And what did they become? They became idolaters, just like the nations round about them. And God chastised them. Israel represented those who did not bear fruit. He teaches in the temple, again, as we notice in chapter 21, verse 23, uh, uh, the first part of the verse, as well as in Luke chapter 20, verse number 1. You see, the Jewish leaders, as he would go, and just remember, this was his subsequent trip, uh, uh, entrance into the temple. Yeah, when he left and did all that, he came right back. He came right back to the temple. And as he entered into the temple that second time, they would ask him, by what authority do you do these things as he would teach in the temple? Remember, Jesus Christ had cleansed the temple before. By what authority do you do these things? And notice Jesus Christ would check their insincerity. Okay, I'll answer you a question. I believe that was a valid question, legitimate question. I will answer you a question, you answer mine. Baptism of John, which was it? From heaven or men? And you can almost see them huddling together. I don't know if you said heaven. He's going to ask us why didn't he do what John said. Because, you know, John, John was teaching the truth. Now, y'all do know now. You might be listening. If we say to men, you know the people, they count John as prophets. We're going to be in trouble with them. What do you think we ought to do? We cannot tell. And Jesus does not argue with the insincere. We'll try to convince the insincere. I need to tell you about what authority I do these things. I don't have time for that. God, so many times we spend time trying to convince and convert the insincere. And there will be none of that until they humble themselves and acknowledge the power of God, the word of God as being the word of God. Until that happens, and yes, we can try to convince them of that. But I'm telling you, if they don't care... You're not going to convince them of anything. One or another of the greatest commands that are literally just rejected by us is when Jesus said, cast not your pearls before swine and give that which is holy to the dogs. 
least they turn around and rid you. We, well, no, 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 I, I, I'm going to do it. I can do it. Maybe it's this, you know, I'm going to make them obey God. No, you, you know, you won't. You won't. And unless a person wants to hear it, they're not going to hear it. And we have to be able to discern when that takes place. They refused to answer the question, so he refused to answer theirs. Would not do it. Jesus responds to this, their dishonesty with three parables, and I'll end on this. In which he condemned the Jews in their nation, the nation as a whole, because they rejected him. He again revealed the future salvation of the Gentiles to him in the parable of the two sons. And I'm just going to leave the reading to you for time's sake, but I hope, I hope you'll do that. Remember, one of those sons, I believe, represented the Jews. I believe one represented the Gentiles. The Jews said they were going to do what God said and did not. How long had they been waiting for the Messiah and stating how they were faithful to God and how they were the people of God and how God loved them, and he did. But then when the Messiah came, the Messiah did not represent what they wanted the Messiah to be. Much like people today, Jesus in the scriptures are not what people want Jesus to be. He is not what people desire him to be. They don't desire what he has. They don't want it. That's why people have to, and you know, you think about this from, from, from a, a figurative standpoint. They have to do what the Jews did in order to live the way they want to live. They have to destroy Jesus. They have to crucify Jesus. They have to kill Jesus for them to be able to worship the way they want to worship, talk the way they want to talk, live how they want to live, dress how they want to dress, do all the things that they want to do. What they have to do is go in this book and they have to destroy the Jesus of this book. They have to change things and twist things and alter things and take things and try to contradict the word of God with itself and make Jesus something out that they want him to be. Oh, Jesus, Jesus does love, but Jesus does not let you do whatever you want to do. And so they have to go in and say, well, now they got to kill him. They can't have this Jesus. Ruling their lives and keeping them from true happiness. Let them tell it. And we can't be like that. We are the people of God if we are members of the Lord's church. If we have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can't crucify Jesus because we don't like what he's saying. The other son, which represented the Gentiles, are oh, we're not going to come all their lives. The Gentiles did what they wanted to do. But God left them not without witness, Paul. And Barnabas teaches us in Acts chapter 14. <laughs> and that son represents the one who says he, was, he wouldn't do it. But then he came back and he did exactly what his father commanded. In the parable of the wicked vine dresser, you have God who sends prophets and prophets and prophets. The, the husbandman who had workers in his vineyard. They would kill, kill, kill. To finally, God sent his own son. You know, instead of saying, hey, this is the son, we better respect him. Well, let's kill him so we can get the inheritance. Again, Jews and Gentiles. The parable of the wedding feast. God invites all. Jews rejected the invitation. Gentiles came. But, you know, even among them, there was this one that was not dressed 
and clothed as he ought to have been. And God showed no respect to persons he had to go to. I encourage you to read those. Jesus' discourse on authority. Jesus is Lord in all of our life. Over everything we are about, over everything we ought to be about, everything we say, everything we do, he must be all to us. Not part, not a portion, but all. And please understand, those to whom Jesus Christ was supposedly to be for their salvation, they rejected. And that city and those people would be destroyed by the destruction that was just heinous by the very people that they despised and looked down upon. It would be those Romans that would encompass the city and destroy every last one of them. And the temple that they held so much esteem to, that Jesus Christ would teach in, and they had the audacity to ask him, I would have, that temple, one stone would not be left upon another. His authority is even to this day. And we'll be judged by his words. And I do hope we realize as he enters into the city of Jerusalem, that final time to fulfill the will of God, please, let us, let us have a different attitude than they had. And remember, the salvation that Jesus Christ has promised all men, both Jew and Gentile, that was in him, is here for us all. His discourse on authority is just as relevant today as it was those many, many, many years ago. If we're here today and we can help you to submit yourself to that authority, we encourage you to come, we encourage you to accept what the Bible says about Jesus, that he came to save you from your sins, from eternal condemnation. No, I'm going, we're going to go ahead and tell you. But see, you have to have faith. You must be willing to repent of your sins, confess Christ before men, as we've talked about throughout the week. And yes, you, you, you're going to be baptized. And what's going to happen is you're going to be crucified with Christ. You're going to be buried with him. And you're going to be raised to walk in newness of life. And as we emphasize newness of life, not the oldness of death, you are going to be a new creature in Christ. You're going to live faithfully and grow in the grace and Lord, uh, in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, throughout the remainder of your life, that you may again lay hold on eternal life and have that hope and assurance through Christ for that life after this life. But I'm going to tell you, that does not mean that you're not going to have difficulties in this world. That does not mean you're not going to get sick. That doesn't mean everybody's going to love you. Most people are going to hate you if you stand for the truth. It does not mean that you're going to live a carefree life, full of tranquility, no problems, smooth as silk. No. And if it is that way, you really need to question whether you've done what God says. Or doing what God says probably better stated. But you can have eternal life through Him. That is a promise. And God is faithful. You will adhere to that. So we can help you in that endeavor as a child of God. Your faith has not been what it needs to be. Please come as we stand and ask this. Jesus is tenderly calling me home, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love without room, farther and farther away.
is calling the weary to rest, calling today, calling today. Bring him thy burden, and thou shalt be blessed. He will not turn thee away. this lesson this evening, but yesterday, this is just, I mean, just a side note completely, sure. but well, we spoke of Cain and Abel, and whenever that story is brought up, you said that the they received a command that they were to offer animal sacrifices. I, I don't see a, a specific command there to offer animal sacrifices. Am I missing it somewhere? Uh, let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. I'm actually so Genesis chapter 4 my apologies in verse number 4 in Abel uh, in verse number 3 rather and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord and Abel uh, he also brought of the first things of the flock and of the fat thereof and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect and Cain was uh, very wroth and his continents fail. All right. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 in conjunction with that. Now, of course, God uh, would tell him, why is your continent wroth? If you do well, shall thou not so also not be accepted. Okay. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer uh, tells us this, that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Uh, as a matter of fact, we find uh, in verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God and that things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying his gifts, and by it him being dead, yet speaketh. 
It's my belief, my contention, that if he offered it by faith, he had to offer it by the command of God. Uh, the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He goes on to say in verse number 6, For without faith it is impossible to please him, for they that come to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so when we look at all these verses and we, we note those things, we again conclude, you know, we oftentimes like to call that inference, but we conclude that Abel had been given the command to offer the persons of the flock. Remember, the Hebrew writer even says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So that, I believe, is the first animal sacrifice, the command of the animal sacrifice, because of the sin that now had entered into the world. It was offered by faith. And the faith, nowhere, biblical faith, is nowhere described as something that is invented in man, but commanded by God. There's no condemnation without law. That's right. In Romans chapter 5. That's right. right. But there's no law, there's no sin. So you can look at it from either one of those men's standpoint. Amen. And, and, be, and be confident. Amen. Amen. And if it was allowed, if it was up to, to Cain or Abel to offer the sacrifice, clearly God would be unjust if he rejected one and accepted the other, and he hadn't given the command to either one of them. So uh, there, there are many things that we can know about that. All right. I guess maybe I'm just preaching a little later than what y'all are accustomed to. Y'all don't want to stay here any later, so you don't have any questions. Some, I have been asked some questions since I've been here. I, I don't want to, you know, jump the gun, but uh, I'm hoping they will be asked. <laughs> Maybe we could ask uh, if folks have some, they could write Please. them down and bring them. Write them down. Write them down, bring them. Write them down. I will uh, do my best. I'm not going to promise you anything. Uh, my wife will tell you I have, over my 20-some-odd years of preaching, have struggled with the length of my lessons. They are what they are. Uh, I hope you can see I don't run down rapid trails or just keep repeating things over and over again, go off here, go off. I take a great amount of time in preparing them. I don't say that area. I'm just simply saying I've tried to work on time and kind of is what it is. Uh, but I will do my best if we if, if that's the problem. We want to leave more more time for questions. But please write them down and uh, we'll we'll do our best to answer them because I know there's some questions out there. Can I address one that has been asked? Let me just do one. Would that be okay with everyone? If it's not now, please let me know. We'll save it. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. All right. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. <laughs> this was actually has been brought up to me uh, a few times, even since I've been here. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I'm sure we're all familiar with Paul. Uh, of course, the Corinthian epistle has many things that are being discussed. But here in chapter 16, Paul is discussing something that actually been set forward by Paul to the Corinthians as well as other churches uh, regarding the poor saints that were at Jerusalem. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. 
upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by in stores. God has prospered him that there, uh, that there be no gatherings when I come. Okay, and we can also continue in that. It's been been brought to my actually I've had a discussion uh, uh, here and it's kind of been brought to my attention and, and actually I, I knew this beforehand that there is the idea or there's the thought that from the collective means of a local church we're not to exercise benevolence to needy saints. Let me ask you this, and I. Uh, just who all believes that here? So there's no. All right. Well, the question is mute then. Nobody believes it. We don't even need to talk about it. It's already been corrected. Because I would disagree with that belief. The question is how do you go about doing that? Not if a group is good. That is, you know, never been the question question is how. Okay. Well, when we're talking about a collective, are we talking about individual Christians or a collective? The church, the local church. Remember, we're a collective by a single means of us acting jointly. Your question was, Is does anyone here believe that the collective group cannot help in a benevolent way, right? Okay, from the treasury. Let me yeah. specify that. From the collective means of the church. That's what makes it collective, like a single source. Of a church, yeah. Right. So I would say, to my knowledge, obviously nobody's crazy. Okay. It's a matter of how we go about doing it. Okay. All right. So, how would we go about doing it? Well, we'd collect like they collected in the New Testament. Okay. And how is that? They did it there on the first day of the week. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, well, I guess that's only good, because I, I agree with that. Uh, on the first day of the week, that we, uh, do we give as they give for that collection, for that effort? <coughs> or is there? One of the questions we have was, does there need to be a specific need first before you collect to give to that need, or... Does our weekly contribution that's in the pool, what we would call our treasury, uh, when a need presents itself, can we pull out of that to help with that need when we didn't know about that need before? Because what you see, you know, I can, I mean, I can kind of see both sides of it. You see them collecting once they knew of a need. Okay. So, uh, right, well, I, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, you're not. Uh, I don't know if I'm explaining myself here, but that's, I mean, that's part of, been part of it. Our question of that is do you wait until you know about a specific need and then take up a collection for that need or do you use money that you've already collected to address a need that comes up? Okay. And I, I, I believe that, that, that uh, that's a valid question. So let, let's, look at, let's look at the scriptures. All right. Now, before we even do that, I believe there are three types of actions. There's individual action. There's distributive action. And there's collective action. Agree? Distributive action would be, hey, there's a new me and Evan. Saying that right, right? Uh, Evan, uh, Ben, and others. Uh, Andrew, we, we say, hey, there's a need. Let's take up a collection. Okay? For that need. 
Alright? Now, is that individual? No. Is it collective? Yeah. So that means the whole church is going to do it. See, in order for it to be collective, guys, we have to jointly do it. Okay? We have to jointly do that. That's You're talking about distributive action. Now, we get, we have authority for that, right? Because we're acting as individuals. Jointly. That's distributive action. But the only way for it to be collective is if the church does it. Well, that's, that's how we operate. Jointly. Participating. Okay, they were jointly participating in this need for the saints of Jerusalem, the Corinthian church, other churches as well. So there was a, co- a contribution and a collection taken up. Now, as far as the question, well, did the need have to take place first for there to be a collection, or could we have a collection to meet the need? Fair? Is that is that am I correct? Yes. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's turn to Acts chapter two for just a moment, in verse forty-two. In Acts chapter two and verse forty-two, of course, Luke records for us these these things. After three thousand souls have been added. The Bible tells us, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, many look at these verses and say, well, that's not necessarily a pattern. Of course, those in our, those of our denominational neighbors would tell us that's not a pattern. Well, I believe it is a pattern. Okay, it's a pattern of how that local church in Jerusalem was operating. First of all, the apostles' doctrine. In other words, the apostles' teaching. We find in fellowship. Now, again, well, what's fellowship? Well, no, that just means that, uh, Benny would say, that just means that they were sharing in the apostles' relationship or the relationship that they had with Christ along with the apostles. The word fellowship is the word koinonia. It does refer to a relationship that we may have with one another, but what else does it refer to? Communion. Communion. Distribution. Distribution yeah. Which entails joint participation. Correct? Okay. Let's look at some other verses here. <laughs> Uh, you well, we could go down there right in Acts chapter two, uh, in verse number. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Right yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and read that for us. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them all as anyone might have need. Okay, so they sold their possessions and their goods, and they parted them to all, as every man had need. All right, there was a need. Amen. We agree to that, right? But now. Was the contribution that we see there in verse 4, because that's what I believe it was, okay? Did that have any relevance of bearing or what was being done here in verse 45? Or, and I would ask the question, if that fellowship or contribution in verse 42 wasn't being used for all the need, what was it being used for? If they were taking up a collection, which I believe they were, what was that collection being used for? Those needs. That's you know that's what it says. As every man had, you know, in other words, it seemed like it was in response to that need. There. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Uh, and uh, again, we can go to Acts chapter five as well. Uh, 
you know, Acts chapter 4, remember Barnabas, we are aware of him. And uh, I'll start with verse 34. Neither was there among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands, of houses, sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution, by the way, there's our word again, okay, was made unto every man according as he had need. Then we also can even turn to Acts chapter 6 to see that there came up a need. There came a need with the uh, Grecian widows being neglected in the daily ministration. They appointed men to take care of this matter, right? Let me ask you something. Did the daily ministration... The daily need, need to have a daily collecting for that need? No. And if so, please show me where we find that. Okay. And going back to the... uh, Go ahead. Just kind of, you know, like, you have a daily accruing of your power bill, and you know it's coming. You know, and they, you know, that daily need could easily be anticipated and dealt with that way. You know what I'm saying? No and way. I do hope that we prepare right, right. for our power bill. That's right. Well, and, and that you would, you know, those needs that you anticipate, you, you see that if they are daily, you know that, you know, if they were yesterday, the day before, and the day before, they're going to be the next day. Too. Exactly. So we find them continuing in the apostle doctrine, fellowship, breaking and bread. They're continuing in that. Now, again, the frequency of the, the, the collecting for those needs is in question. Uh, I've also known that in Acts chapter 11, okay, in verse 29, Acts chapter 11, uh, let's start with verse 20, uh, 27. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. I want to pause for just a moment. I find future tense here. Something that was going to come. Something that would come. Not that was there. Okay? Yet. Not yet. Alright, then in verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which came to Judea. Let's pause. The disciples, every man according to his ability, they what? They gave to the future need. How did they do that? By prophecy, no one knew it was coming. That's right. What was the method in which they did it? Okay, as they could, and, 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 as their ability allowed. Amen. Right. And, and let me add this as well. Okay, there had to be a time when it was done. Okay, I believe that. All right. Now, when was that time they gave according to their ability? Now you know we find the same language. In the Corinthian epistle, Second Corinthians, we all give according to our ability. Okay, same language. Don't give, you can't give beyond your ability. So now, when did this take place? That's the question. First, I believe so. 